Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week is my friend, Matthew. Hello, everybody. Members of the Dark Poutine Facebook groups, the Yumber Yard, and in particular, the Barnyard, will recognize Matthew as a prolific poster and especially <laughs> as the dad of Dark Poutine's unofficial mascot, Steve the English Bulldog. He's British. Okay, he's a British bulldog. He counts Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's great to have you with me, Matthew. We've talked about doing this for a long time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And this particular episode, I'm glad you could help me with. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. I want my dark poutine. In the early morning hours of November 17, 2001, officers from the Vancouver Police were dispatched to the Second Beach area of Stanley Park. Several callers to 911 indicated that there had been some kind of altercation and a group of men had badly beaten another man. Two VPD constables arrived at the Second Beach parking lot within minutes of being called to find a distraught man frantically providing CPR to a bloodied man on the ground. The man on the ground was naked except for socks and hiking boots. Police assessed the man's condition and immediately called for an ambulance. It didn't look good. The paramedics from the BC Ambulance Service arrived quickly, but determined that it was too late. Aaron Zane Donald Webster, 42 years old, and a member of Vancouver's gay community, was dead. He had been brutally beaten with a blunt instrument, and his killers had skittered off into the night, leaving Aaron to die. Aaron's death would become recognized as Canada's most well-known and notorious case of gay bashing. You are listening to episode 166, Hate Crime, The Murder of Aaron Webster. Aaron Webster's obituary indicated he was survived by his divorced parents and siblings, two sisters and two brothers, as well as a number of nieces and nephews. The family had moved around a lot when the kids were young. They were army brats and never got to settle in one place for a long time. The AIDS crisis had ripped through Vancouver's gay community in the late 1980s and 90s, 
taking the lives of many and forever impacting the lives of their loved ones. Aaron's longtime partner, Steve, had died of complications caused by AIDS. According to an article in the Vancouver Sun on November 22, 2001, Aaron was described as a hypersensitive man with an edgy sense of humor. He made his living first as a house painter and then as an assistant manager of a local general paint store. His passion, though, was photography, and it was there that he was best able to comment artistically on the world he saw about him. Aaron's cousin Fred Norman talked to the Vancouver Sun about Aaron's love of photography and his passion for photographing nude male bodies. Quote, It was an outlet to express himself, a way to show his love for the way things were, to show the beauty of an image, the beauty of a human being, a lot of it was healing. Many photos, some taken by Aaron himself, highlighted his love for his dog, a Sheltie named Zane, who'd been with Aaron through some of the tough times. Zane, too, had passed away only a year prior, and Aaron was beside himself with grief once again. According to Yvonne Zacharias in the Vancouver Sun on November 22, 2001, quote, Before his death, Aaron had been working with his friend Tim Chisholm on a calendar of his photos to assist several businesses in the gay community with public relations. Chisholm says the calendar will become a memorial calendar. Tim Chisholm, was also the man who'd provided CPR to Aaron Webster as he lay dying there in the Second Beach parking lot. Chisholm, never a suspect in the killing, just happened to be in the park the night his friend was so brutally killed. Aaron Webster, to all accounts, was a good egg. This is not the first mention of this case in a Dark Poutine episode. We briefly mentioned it in episode 13 when covering another crime that had taken place in Stanley Park the still-unsolved Babes in the Woods murders in the early 1950s. Despite it having some dark history, Stanley Park, called Vancouver's Crown Jewel, is one of the most beautiful urban parks in the world. For 3,200 years, it has been the traditional territory of Coast Salish First Nations, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salel Watuth. The city of Vancouver's website describes the park, established in 1888, as, quote, a magnificent green oasis in the midst of the urban landscape of Vancouver. The site goes on to invite visitors to, quote, explore the 400-hectare natural West Coast rainforest and enjoy scenic views of water, mountains, sky, and majestic trees along Stanley Park's famous seawall. Discover kilometers of trails, beautiful beaches, local wildlife, great eats, natural, cultural, and historical landmarks, along with many other adventures. The park offers a wide range of unforgettable experiences for all ages and interests, including Canada's largest aquarium. The privacy afforded by the park's dense foliage and out-of-the-way location has made it a popular spot for thrill-seeking and closeted men to seek out no-strings-attached and often anonymous homosexual encounters in the bushes just off the park's many trails. According to the entry for Rawlings Trail, in Stanley Park on cruisinggays.com, the trail between Second Beach slash Bridal Path and the Stone Bridge at Lost Lagoon are the best spots to meet up with someone with a similar agenda. The author of the post on the site wrote, quote, Best time is after dusk, especially on a clear, moonlit nights, since the moonlight is about all the light you're going to get to see otherwise. There is also some action first thing in the morning for commuters looking to get a blowjob before heading to work, end quote. This is what had brought Aaron Webster to the park on the night of his slaying. Although police had no suspects initially, there were witnesses to the attack on Aaron Webster that night. 
According to court documents, a young couple, Michelle Richmond and Frederico Angulo, were out for the evening and decided to take a drive through Stanley Park early morning, coming into the park from Beach Drive. Carol and I have done that exact same drive many times. Upon reaching the intersection of Stanley Park Drive, which is one way going counterclockwise, the couple were compelled to either turn right toward Lost Lagoon or continued for a short distance and turned down into the second beach parking lot, which loops around and back onto Stanley Park Drive. Inside the loop is a grassed area with bushes and trees. They chose to turn left. As they approached the entrance to the parking lot, they saw a man wearing no shirt standing facing another man at the near end of the angled parking stalls along Stanley Park Drive. As their headlights lit the scene, which was one or two car lengths away, they saw the man bring a bat-like weapon down on the head of the shirtless man, and the shirtless man fell. Frederico said they were both side-on to him, and the assailant was to the left. Both noted the assailant was wearing a baseball cap. Frederico said it was black and worn backwards. Michelle said she saw two others standing nearby on the same side of the car, but could not see if they had anything in their hands. Frederico saw two or three people, three to five feet away. He was not really looking at the others, but from what he could see, he noticed nothing in their hands. He saw a car a stall or two away from the people and a blue Jeep TJ or Cherokee beyond. He drove down into the parking lot. Michelle called 911 on a cell phone and they waited for police. In the meantime, Tim Chisholm, who had seen Aaron earlier in the evening, had been parked in one of the angled parking stalls back along Stanley Park Drive. He heard noises at the end of the parking stalls and drove his large white Ford club wagon along past the stalls and came across the naked body of Aaron lying beside his car. He too called 911 and then attempted unsuccessfully to resuscitate his friend. Michelle and Frederico, still parked back in the parking lot, heard loud voices and noises apparently coming toward them. They became alarmed and decided to leave, continuing around the loop back onto Stanley Park Drive and past the scene of the beating. Frederico stated that the blue Jeep was gone by that time. They saw the large white van, and Frederico saw someone later identified as Tim Chisholm bending over Aaron Webster's body. Driving past quickly, Frederico assumed that the man he saw was further assaulting the man laying on the ground. Frightened, Michelle and Frederico drove to a parking lot closer to English Bay to wait for the cops to arrive. The killers had escaped. The attack on Aaron Webster had been brutal and sustained. Details of his injuries come from court documents. Pathologist Dr. Gray conducted an autopsy on Aaron Webster on November 19, 2001. Aaron sustained approximately 13 or 14 wounds from a beating with rounded, linear objects, one thicker than the other. There were five large bruises to Aaron's legs, two across the top of his buttocks, two on his mid-back, two on Aaron's right chest at the bottom of his ribcage, one to his left forearm, two internal bruises to the back of his neck, which were not visible through the skin, and one severe area of bruising to Aaron's right jaw spreading into his neck. Aaron's right jawbone was broken. The two bruises on his buttocks could have been made by one blow. Two of the bruises on his legs could have also been made by a single blow. The cause of Aaron Webster's death was a torn artery in his neck, which is often quickly fatal. The artery itself was not directly in the path of a blow, but the artery was torn by a sudden tilting rotational movement of Aaron's head and neck, imparted by a blow. Not a lot of force is required in such a, 
and such a result is rare in Dr. Gray's view. But in any case, she concluded that Mr. Webster died as a result of one of the blows to his neck. All of the blows to the back, buttocks, and legs, with the exception of the two to the right rib cage, were consistent with having been made by a thicker instrument. The other two were much thinner. This indicated more than one attacker and more than one weapon. A broken pool cue was found near the pay parking machine, which is 85 meters away from the scene, along the angled parking stalls. This was compared to the thicker bruises and found to be consistent with the weapon used to cause them. The two thinner blows were consistent with having been caused by the shaft of a golf iron or the thin end of a pool cue. Dr. Gray said the injury to the jaw could possibly have been caused by a pool cue, although the severity of the bruising to the neck suggested superimposed impacts with another weapon. As the city heard about the murder and its brutality, the majority of Vancouverites were incensed that such a violent and apparently homophobic act could have taken place in a city that sees itself, even then, as a bastion of openness, tolerance, and a safe place for queer people to live their lives. The gay community knew better. Homophobic violence was not so uncommon, according to the numbers. Dr. Bill Coleman said in a Vancouver Sun article published two days after Aaron Webster's death that an earlier survey indicated that 45% of gay men in Vancouver reported having been victimized in a gay bashing. From the Vancouver Sun on November 18, 2001, Vancouver went through a rash of vicious gay bashings in the early 1990s. One of the worst was the attack on Steve Macklin, who was 27 in 1992, when he was almost killed in an attack frighteningly similar to the attack on Aaron Webster. Macklin was on a gay stroll in Stanley Park when he was attacked. There was a man standing beside a tree, said Macklin not long after. As I got level with him, he pulled a steel pipe from behind his back. The man knocked Macklin down and then beat him unmercifully. A second man came out of the shadows and kicked Macklin as he was being beaten with the post. The whole side of my face was crushed, my arm broken in four places, ribs broken, and seven teeth were knocked out. It took eight metal plates and 38 screws to rebuild his face. No one was charged. The community was sick of it. This was what was behind the powerful response to Aaron Webster's death. As police sought Aaron's killers on the weekend, only days after Aaron's death, a rally led by members of Vancouver's gay community, including the late Jim Diva, then proprietor of the Little Sisters Bookshop, which according to the TIE is, quote, a Canadian landmark for LGBT resources. Expecting only a few dozen people to show up at the quickly planned rally, the group's organizers were moved when over 3,000 people showed up to support them and call for change. One of the rally's organizers, Murray Billida, recalled his feelings on seeing the unexpected turnout years later to Kate Adak and Sam Eifling of the Taiyi. Quote, It was something that immediately strengthened my faith in my fellow West Enders and Vancouverites and British Columbians, he said through tears. To see a community respond in such a powerful way to one person's violent death was, I think, something we haven't seen in Vancouver since. From Extra Magazine I think it's fair to say that every gay man in Vancouver, the thought went through their mind. This could have been me, says filmmaker Erlen Weisserman, who documented the demonstration. Just hit people in the gut. It was really shocking, she says. I remember thinking we were beyond the reach of this kind of violence, and then thinking, well, maybe we're not. I just happened to be right at the front of the march, says Jonathan Byers. 
I remember getting to the bottom of the hill and wondering how many of us there were, and I turned around and all of Davy Street was a mass of people marching, and still people coming over the hill. I was just amazed. I ended up crying the rest of the way. It was very, very moving. What stands out for Wiseman was the silence. There were several thousand people walking down Davy Street and it was silent, she says. That silence was incredibly powerful. Rally goers called for the killing to be investigated as a hate crime. It was not the first time there were homophobic attacks on men in that exact same spot. Even though one of the cops, a VPD inspector named Dave Jones, assured the crowd that the attack was being investigated as a hate crime, he was later chastised for saying just that. And police didn't do themselves any favors, telling gay men to stay out of the park for a while as they might find themselves in danger as Aaron's killers had not been caught, rather than making the park a safe place for them to go. They mildly contradicted themselves, stating that there may be reasons other than homophobia, claiming the attack was more likely motivated by the perpetrator's desire for robbery. As Aaron was naked at the time of the attack, that explanation seems to defy logic. From Extra Magazine In the immediate aftermath of the murder, Diva and other community members formed a committee to identify the community's needs and attempt to meet them, out of that came more gay representation on various West End associations such as the then Davy Business Improvement Association and the Streets Community Policing Office. That we'd been isolated for too long was readily apparent, Davis says. The committee also began meeting with police to push for arrests and sensitize the force, quote, because it was readily apparent that they needed us and we needed them, Davis says. It was the first time the gay community had really interacted with the Vancouver Police Department, he notes. Diva and his group hoped to raise $10,000 to be put forward as a reward for anyone who provided information leading to the capture and conviction of Aaron Webster's death. The community really came together. Weeks before Aaron Webster's murder, another man, Edward Smith, reported being attacked by four males in Stanley Park near Second Beach. He called 911 in October and early November to report the incidents. Smith told Patricia Bailey at the Vancouver Sun that the three young men were in the park on multiple occasions, quote, looking to hurt someone. Smith said he was not homosexual, but claimed he went to the park to take late night walks to tire himself out. From Patricia Bailey's Vancouver Sun article on December 12, 2001, quote, Roughly three weeks before Webster's death, Smith said he was walking in Stanley Park at about 1 a.m. when four males between the age of 20 and 30 confronted him, pushed him down, and began to club him. They were trying to rob me, said the solidly built, soft-spoken man. Smith said he suffers from insomnia and wanders in the park when he can't sleep. He managed to get away from the four, two of whom he recognized from other confrontations in the park. He described one of the pair as tall and skinny with blonde hair and the second was short and dark-skinned. Smith escaped his attackers, ran to Stanley Park's main road, and flagged down a car, where he used the driver's cell phone to call 911. The first run-in that Smith had with the group was a year before, in November 2000, while out picking up cans and bottles late one night. He was walking by a Jeep Cherokee in the Second Beach parking lot when four men got out and threatened him with a bat, but he managed to get away unharmed, talking his way out of it. Only two weeks later, after returning to his vehicle from yet another late-night walk, Smith saw the same Jeep parked in the Second Beach parking lot next to his truck. When he got into his truck and started it up, the same four men got out of the Cherokee and smashed the side mirror of his truck before he could drive off. 
Smith was out of town when Aaron Webster was killed, but on hearing of the killing, he immediately thought about the attacks that he had endured near the same spot. He spoke with police again in December 2001, following up on his earlier reports. VPD detectives Rob Feoro and Sean Trowski later told the Vancouver Sun they looked into the group who had assaulted Edward Smith, but the leads, quote, didn't work out. Although police had received hundreds of tips on Aaron Webster's murder and looked into dozens of other incidents in the park, they could not come up with a solid group of suspects. It would be more than a year after Aaron's death before they made any arrests. In the meantime, supporters seeking justice for Aaron Webster kept the media engaged with conversations around hate crimes against gays in the Lower Mainland. Gay men were frightened, rightfully, that it might happen again. Many stayed in rather than go out and chance becoming another victim. Others went out but looked over their shoulders the whole time. All of them wondered when the police were going to catch the monsters who destroyed such a gentle man as Aaron Webster. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. On the anniversary of Aaron's death, his community nor the police had forgotten what had happened. Detective Fioro spoke with Greg Middleton of the Vancouver Sun in an article published on November 17, 2002. We know people out there who were there when this happened. He said, those who were involved have probably talked. There have to be a dozen to two dozen people out there who know who did it, said Fioro. And, he said, police believe at least one of the attackers was only peripherally involved and might be in a position to cut a deal to save himself. We're hoping that by now someone's conscience is doing its job and they will come forward, Feoro said. And even if your conscience doesn't prompt you to come forward, maybe the money will, he said, referring to the almost $22,000 which had been raised in reward money. As with many crimes involving a group of perpetrators, it was time and the inability to keep a secret that finally shone a light on Aaron Webster's killers. On February 5, 2003, Detective Rob Feoro spoke about a break in the case to Extra Magazine's Robin Perel. Quote, We know who is responsible for the death of Aaron Webster, says homicide detective Rob Feoro. There is no doubt in my mind that I have the right person. End quote. A week later, on February 12, 2003, police went to the home of a 19-year-old Burnaby man to question him in relation to Aaron Webster's death. Cops had received tips from people claiming that the man had admitted in passing to his involvement in the beating death of Aaron Webster. The man, who was 17 and a young offender at the time of Aaron Webster's death, is identified in court documents only as J.S. He accompanied the police officers down to the police station. There... He gave a warned and videotaped statement, at first denying any involvement. He then advised the detective that, quote, he wanted to come clean, and admitted the following. J.S. advised that he and four other males, a man named Ryan Cran, A.C., another youth, a man named Danny Rao, and T.R., another youth, were drinking together on the evening of November 16, 2001. In the early hours, November 17th, they went down to Stanley Park. 
J.S. described himself as being quite drunk. In the early hours of November 17, 2001, they had parked their car in the Third Beach parking lot. They walked down an area near Second Beach. They went into the bushes and hid. They saw Aaron Webster walking naked down a road. They burst out of the bushes and started running after him. He ran from them. J.S. held a bat. The others had weapons of some kind as well. J.S. hit Aaron first, or second, on the back near the shoulder. At that point, Aaron said, that's enough, guy. They chased Aaron Webster to his car. Aaron fell to the ground after a blow given by another. The male surrounded him. J.S. struck Aaron a second time on the legs. He noted at this time that Aaron was out cold. J.S., Ryan Cran, and T.R. ran into the bushes. A.C. and Danny Rao continued to hit Aaron Webster, wailing on him as he lay unconscious on the ground. J.S. estimated that they hit him approximately seven times each. As J.S. was hiding in the bushes, he was thinking, if you don't want to kill the guy, what are you doing? Like, why don't you stop? They just kept going. I didn't say anything. Didn't yell anything out. They then all ran down to the seawall, back to their vehicle at Third Beach, and left the park. As they were leaving the park, they saw the ambulance attending to Aaron Webster, attempting CPR. The next day, J.S. learned that Aaron Webster had died. He met with the others to discuss what to do about it. It was suggested by someone that they lie. Quote, just say you weren't there. They got no evidence or anything like that. End quote. Police pressed J.S. for more information. J.S. advised the police that they went down to Stanley Park for the purpose of finding, quote, peeping toms to beat up. The detective asked, Is it fair to say that anyone coming that way would have gotten a beating? J.S. said, yeah. The detective asked, It just didn't matter who it was? J.S. replied, no, it actually did. Well, we were looking for those, those peeping tom guys. The detective stated, Peeping Tom guys who look in cars at guys making out? J.S. replied, Fucking voyeurs, yeah, exactly. And they fight back as well, you know? The detective asked, Oh, they do? J.S. replied, Yeah. The detective asked, How many times did you say you guys did that? Would you go out and look for guys? J.S. replied, Oh, I've done it like three times. The detective asked, And... Just again, so it's clear in my mind, why did you guys go out to do that? Was it a fun thing, or... Jess replied, yeah, it's, um, entertainment. I hate to say it. When asked by Sergeant McCluskey how he felt about this whole thing, J.S. responded, quote, terrible. Just every night, every night I go to bed, it's like things remind me about it. Like every time I hear the word Stanley Park, see it on some map or something, it's just dreaded. J.S. was the first person arrested and charged in Aaron Webster's death. A.C., Ryan Cran, and Danny Rao would be arrested later, and the two adults, Cran and Rao, would be tried together. On July 30, 2003, J.S. pleaded guilty to manslaughter and would be sentenced in December. Ryan Cran had also told a friend about his involvement in Webster's death. He couldn't keep his mouth shut either. Thank goodness. News of Aaron Webster's death was all over the news in the days after it had happened. Ryan Cran went to a pool hall he frequented. There, he spoke with an employee of the Q-Zone pool hall named John Morgato. Ryan had invited John to go to Stanley Park with him on two occasions, suggesting they might go there to the Prospect Point area to drink and party, and if they saw anyone peek into vehicle windows while two people were making out, they might beat them up. 
Morgado refused to go on both occasions. Following the media coverage of Aaron Webster's death, John Morgado began thinking about the times Ryan Cran had invited him to go along to Stanley Park. John looked at Ryan Cran and, from Cran's expression, thought Ryan might have been involved. Still looking at Ryan, Morgado shook his head and Ryan smiled. John said, was that you? Ryan said, yeah, it was us. Ryan then went into some detail, and he said some friends from Surrey had parked their vehicle at Second Beach, walked through the trails at Stanley Park, and had run into somebody they saw was naked and started beating him. Ryan said as they were beating Aaron, he kind of stopped. I guess he thought it was enough. The other people kept going, kept on hitting him. Ryan gave his most chilling account to another friend, Lance Rudick. Rudick had gone to high school with Ryan Cran and also worked at Q-Zone. Ryan had come into the pool hall shortly after Aaron Webster's death. Cran seemed to be drunk. From Extra Magazine, he placed his keys on the table, pulled up a chair to the front counter of the customer service area, and used the words, Lance, we lynched this guy. We lynched him. Then he mentioned Stanley Park. Lance, we lynched a guy. We lynched a guy. We beat this guy up. Rudick later said that at the time, he didn't take Cran seriously. Quote, I thought he was just trying to get a rise out of me. Robin Perell of Extra Magazine provided an excellent timeline of the legal proceedings that followed, and we'll flesh it out here. On October 9th, 2003, Danny Rao, Ryan Cran, and A.C. were arrested and charged with manslaughter. The Crown Prosecutor was refusing to pursue hate crime charges against the group as those charges were notoriously more difficult to prove, and if found not guilty, the group might escape punishment in Webster's death. For the Crown, it was the path of least resistance. For Webster's family, friends, and others in the community, it was another slap in the face. To the chagrin of Webster's supporters, six days after his initial arrest, Ryan Cran was granted bail. But he had to return to custody because his family couldn't raise the money required to post his bail bond. Danny Rao remained in jail. On November 28, 2003, sentencing submissions were presented for J.S. Crown counsel Sandra Dworkin asked for a 20- to 32-month sentence. She said she could not prove the killing was a gay bashing, but said the attack seemed to target peeping toms. On December 12, 2003, Ryan Cran was released on bail again. On December 18, 2003, Youth Court Judge Valmond Romilly ruled the attack was motivated by hatred. Judge Romilly wrote, quote, The attack and beating of Mr. Webster was in fact a hate crime. I am aware that the Crown has conceded that since J.S. has stated they went to the park looking for, quote, peeping toms or voyeurs, and that he did not know that this area was frequented by homosexuals, she has no way of establishing that this was, quote, a hate crime. I disagree. Romilly sentenced J.S. to three years, the maximum sentence a youth can get for manslaughter. J.S. was to spend two of those years in a youth detention center and the last year at home under strict conditions. On December 22, 2003, Danny Rao was released on bail. On January 22, 2004, A.C., the second youth charged in Aaron Webster's death, pleaded guilty to manslaughter. On March 31, 2004, sentencing submissions were presented in court for A.C. Crown Counsel Greg Weber sought the maximum sentence but did not describe the killing as a hate crime. On April 13, the preliminary hearing into the adults case began in provincial court. Ryan Cran and Danny Rao were to be tried together as co-accused. 
On April 21st, 2004, youth court judge Jody Warrior sentenced AC to three years, the maximum sentence. She stopped short of calling the killing a hate crime. She noted that the youth was already on probation for possession of stolen property and operating a stolen vehicle at the time of Webster's death. On May 28, 2004, Judge Jane Godfrey convicted Danny Rao of obstructing justice after he attempted to interfere with a witness for his upcoming manslaughter trial. On July 9th, Rao appealed his obstruction conviction. On November 15, 2004, Danny Rao and Ryan Cran's trial began in B.C. Supreme Court. Both of the men pleaded not guilty. On December 10, 2004, Justice Mary Humphreys convicted Ryan Cran of manslaughter, but acquitted Rao because she said there is too much reasonable doubt to find him guilty. The spectators in the courtroom were stunned at Rao's acquittal. They jeered as the judge read her decision. One man shouted, he killed a man. Another yelled at Rao saying he'd gotten away with murder, to which Rao, 22, shot back, fuck you. On January 23, 2005, on the eve of Ryan Cran's sentencing, about a thousand gay protesters gathered on the steps of B.C. Supreme Court to demand hate crime designation in Webster's death. Crown counsel Greg Weber asked for a six to nine year sentence but was not seeking a hate crime designation. On February 8, 2005, Justice Mary Humphrey sentenced Ryan Cran to six years for manslaughter. She said that the Crown presented no evidence at trial to prove that Cran deliberately targeted a gay man, so she refused to designate the killing a hate crime. Outraged members of the gay community and Webster's family called for then-B.C. Attorney General Jeff Plant to conduct an investigation into the prosecution of the case and the Crown's decision not to seek a hate crime designation. In December 2005, J.S. was released from custody to serve the last year of his sentence at home under supervision. On April 20, 2006, A.C. was released from prison to serve the last year of his sentence at home under supervision. On February 6, 2009, after having been denied early parole, Ryan Cran was released on statutory parole after serving two-thirds of his sentence behind bars. Parole board documents show that Cran was involuntary transferred to higher security while incarcerated for alcohol use. He was instructed to abstain from alcohol, avoid people he suspects may be, quote, involved in criminal activity, and get counseling until his sentence ended on February 7, 2011. Jim Diva had some choice words about Ryan Cran for Matthew Burroughs' Georgia Strait article in February of 2009. Diva said what was on everyone else's mind. Ryan Cran's a piece of shit, Diva, co-owner of Little Sisters Book and Art Emporium, said in a phone interview with the Georgia Strait. I don't spend much time thinking about him or his life, but it's getting a message out that this sort of activity is absolutely inappropriate and a broader message that you're not protected when you do this. You get nailed. And our community is there to watch that you get nailed. End quote. As Aaron Webster lived in a co-op, he had been memorialized by the Cooperative Housing Federation of British Columbia with a scholarship. Their site states, when we created the CHF BC Scholarship Fund, we decided to name one of the scholarships after Aaron Webster. Aaron was the victim of a hate crime. He was killed because he was gay and for no other reason. This tragedy affected many of us deeply because at the time of his death, Aaron was the president of his housing co-op. Not long after Aaron's death, CHF BC established the Aaron Webster Memorial Fund in the hope of using it in some way to celebrate our diversity as a co-op housing movement. 
This is the seed that grew into our scholarship fund, and each year we name one of our scholarships the Aaron Webster Memorial Scholarship to acknowledge those roots. Aaron's former co-op was named after him, and a new one to replace the old one is in its planning stages from the Community Land Trust website. Aaron Webster Housing Cooperative is partnering with CLT to redevelop the site of their previous building and provide a new home for their members. After members approved the partnership, they were relocated to another CLT property as a complete community while planning and development are underway. The new building will comprise 64 cooperative homes, 31 homes are replacements for existing Aaron Webster members, 33 homes represent new additions to the community housing sector. In 2008, the Centre, a community centre serving and supporting lesbian, gay, transgendered, bisexual people and their allies in partnership with the Vancouver Police Department, received funding from the Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General's Safe Streets and Safe Schools Initiative. Together, they organized a series of public and community-specific forums that were organized to strengthen existing relationships between the Vancouver Police Department and local LGTB communities, and in so doing, address the underreporting of violence, both hate-motivated violence and relationship violence in LGTB communities. The title of the project was the Aaron Webster Anti-Violence Project. The report concluded, In addition to the improved communication between the LGTB communities and police, participants said that anti-homophobia and transphobia education needs to extend to broader mainstream communities as well. Media, schools, community leaders, and elected officials all play a role in addressing homophobia and transphobia. It is rare that community members have an opportunity to have a dialogue with members of the police force in a non-emergency setting including senior management. The VPD's willingness to engage in this process sends a strong message to local LGTB communities. The dialogue and relationship building that emerge from these forums are invaluable, yet they are also tenuous. To stop the violence and improve safety for LGTB communities, we need to continue to forge bridges and collaborations. And for support and educational resources, please check out qmunity.ca and pflagcanada.ca, and we'll share those links in the show notes. That's it for this week's case, Dark Poutine episode 166, Hate Crime, the murder of Aaron Webster. Gut-wrenching. Yeah. So I called it hate crime, even though not all the judges decided that they would call it a hate crime. And you've did some research on hate crimes and wanted to talk about that. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I think the judges are smart because when it's a hate crime, you have to meet certain thresholds. Mm -hmm. And and I think there was a fear that they would get off scot-free if they tried to push it that far, right? So that's probably smart for them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hate crimes generally for me, I kind of have a weird relationship with them because I'm not sure. Okay. This guy, uh, was an individual person, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, hate crimes, um, it's sort of, I worry sometimes that it starts pitting people against each other Mm -hmm. in society. Now I think it's important for society to step up and go, okay, this is completely unacceptable. But, you know, I'd rather have seen these guys get first degree murder charges rather rather than like try to do a hate crime charge. The one guy was released until 
the court case, right? Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. Like that angered me so much when I heard that. Yeah. You want to give people some background about yourself and how you kind of relate to the community in this case? Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> surprise, surprise, I'm gay. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I'm gay man in I just realized yesterday I'm in my 50s. <laughs> I thought I was in my 40s until my husband pointed out that I'm in my 50s. So, you know, thing, times have changed. Yeah. Uh, I think it's getting better. But, um, you know, I grew up in the deep, dark 1970s and 1980s. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced homophobia and hate, like, all my life, mm-hmm. right, from... You know, once I was at Pride in Toronto and somebody threw a beer bottle at us that smacked, like, from a moving car. Yeah. Right? To I once went to look at an apartment with a boyfriend and was told, we don't rent to people like you. Wow. Like, in Canada. Can you Yeah, it? right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, name calling through high school, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I've, I've experienced it all my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People are rather deluded about... <laughs> Uh, you know, how much acceptance, uh, people get. Yeah. You know, I, it's, um, I hope it's better. Yeah. You know, I'm, the thing is I'm older and married now, so not out Mm -hmm. there a lot. And I just hope the younger kids find it easier. I don't know if they do or not. Yeah. So is cruising still a thing in Canada? I, Uh, I think so. Um, you know, I think that since like apps, dating apps, mm-hmm. um, I, I think a lot of people have had moved on to that because, well, it's safer. Right. You know what I mean? And, and you can sort of do a little bit of a swiping left or swiping right. Yeah. So you get to make a choice. <laughs> yeah. So you can get, you know, I met my husband on, on an app in London years ago. We've been together for mm. married this year for 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think people still do. But, um, you know, it's, it's maybe a bit safer, but, you know, getting out there in nature, probably fun for guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Could be. Could be. I've never done it myself, but... Uh, Me either. Yeah, well. I did visit um, the location of where this murder happened this morning. You mentioned that. And how did you feel about uh, sort of seeing where that had gone down? Well... You've been to Stanley Park. Yep. You know, it's such a beautiful place, right? It's so beautiful. And it's, you know, to stand there and like I was in the parking lot, I'm like, I wonder I'm standing, if I'm standing in the spot that it happened, right? Yeah. And it's sort of an eerie feeling. And I I just felt, you know, I felt bad for the guy. I felt bad for his friends. I felt, you know, he had a bit of a tough time just leading up to that. You know, his partner had died, his dog had died. Yeah. And um, he sounds like he was a wonderful guy. Yeah. And just to think that, you know, a bunch of morons beat him to death in this beautiful spot. It's yeah. just, it's just completely the opposite of the beauty of the place, you know? What's your, what's your take on the peeping Tom defense that they, they <laughs> used? Such to? bullshit. I think so too. It, they went there to beat up or kill fags. Yeah. Simple as that. Peeping and peeping Tom, they were the ones being the peeping Toms. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, like I just, when I heard that, I was just like, that doesn't make sense. They obviously said they probably, they understood that they needed to say something other than we're there to beat up fags. Yeah. Right. And I use the word fag because I'm allowed to. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's a bundle of sticks apparently. Yes. That's tied together and burned at a stake. Oh gosh. There you go. 
Oh no, that's even worse. I know. Is that is that the root of that? I don't. I don't know. I don't think. Wow. So. Might because, might be. I heard that when I was young. Hmm. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you <laughs> Sorry go. Sorry to depress you. There. No, no, <laughs> no. I I learn something new every day, and uh, thankfully, I've got friends like you who uh, are willing to come and help us out with the show. I'm more than happy to do it. So let's get on to uh, move on to some voicemails. We're going to listen to some of the uh, conversations that uh, people have had with our voicemail answering machine, and uh, see if there's anything interesting. <laughs> Hi, Dark Team. My name is Samantha Brown with an E. I am in Northern Ontario from Elliott Lake. I just wanted to call and leave a message to say how much I really appreciate the podcast. I've been a listener for almost a year and a half now. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Mike, for your support and everything that you do to entertain me for the week. Um, even though these crimes are sad sometimes, you are very informative for the Sammy Yateen case. I wrote about the paper in the sociology course a few years ago, and you just kind of hit on the points I taught in my paper, so it was really great to go back and read my paper. Um, also, your voice film for this number made me laugh. Uh, I just wanted to say that I love you guys. Carol, I love having you on the show. You kind of make me have a good thought once in a while, and I love it. Anyways, my mom's going to laugh when I say this. Go shit in your hat. Bye, guys. Well, thank you so much from uh, Samantha Brown with an E, best way to spell Brown anyway. Does everyone who have, has the last name Brown say with an E or sans E? Uh, no, only the people with an E have to say with an E because <laughs> if you knew how many times I have had to say my name is Michael Brown with an E, mm. it, it's, it might as well be Brown is spelled all one word, brown with an E. That's like me, Matthew, one T. It's like <laughs> it, all my life, oh Matthew, my gosh, Matthew one ridiculous. T. Thank you so much, Samantha, for your call. Much appreciated. Uh, let's move on here. Uh, let's see. Okay. Here's one. <laughs> Hi, Mike. This is Alicia and Trevor. Hi. <laughs> We really like the podcast. We've been listening to it. Uh, I listened to it from the beginning uh, not too long ago. And I guess uh, our favorite episode, my favorite episode still the one about the uh, Halifax explosion. Um, I really like how compassionate you guys are. And we're really enjoying the podcast. So have a great break. And we'll listen to you soon. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. That that was nice. I like it when people call in are nice. Absolutely. Oh, I, I never play the ones where people are mean. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, like, right? Hi, Mike and Scott. Um, this is Joe Hartwell. I recently became a patron, and I've been listening to you all for a few months now. I just wanted to say that I so appreciate your show because in the past month, I have moved from the United States, where I was in North Carolina, to Portugal. And you all have been a really good tether to normality for me during all the stress of that move. 
So I just want to say I really, really appreciate y'all. I love how y'all do the show. And go shit in your head. Bye. Why, thank you so much. It, it's so nice to be told, go shit in my hat in such different accents all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Matthew, you've never told me to go shit in my hat, have you? Mm, no. I just tell you to fuck off. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Matthew doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's it for voicemails. You can leave us a voicemail if you like at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. Well, because I couldn't get Poutine as the phone number, but if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Um, I guess now that means let's move on to some Patreon shoutouts, and there's a few. Uh, people are still becoming patrons of the show even though we've been on a break, which I am so grateful for. First up, from Gloucester, Ontario, is Kim Sheeler. Thank you so much, Kim. Uh, Matthew, what does Kim do for a job? <laughs> she is a professional zombie. She's a professional zombie. What does that entail? She's an extra for zombie movies. She actually makes a living out of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Does she have a particular sort of thing that makes her stand out from the other zombies or is she just uh, a, a blade of grass in a field of green skin well she she always drags the the right leg not the left okay yeah. okay that makes sense yeah that, that's a good good choice that's a good creative choice there yeah, it is yeah. all right next up we have from michigan city indiana nancy wright what does Nancy do for a living there in Michigan City, Matthew? Michigan City. I always thought it was a state, but um, she is, she makes bespoke kazoos. Oh, bespoke kazoos. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, a little bit of bling, some sparkles. She actually sold one to Vanilla Ice last week. Oh, wow. Oh, he, Vanilla Ice is still a person. He's trying to he's trying to get his career back on, and he thought one of her kazoos just might do it. You never know. And you never know. You can't, uh, yeah. Uh, I'd listen to Vanilla Ice playing a gazoo. Ice, ice, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, next up, we have Brandy May Rintoul from Melfort in Saskatchewan, I believe. Wow. And what does Brandy do there in Saskatchewan? Can you imagine proofreading dictionaries? Proofreading dictionaries. Wow, that's exciting. That would be so difficult. Yeah, because you wouldn't have any reference material. Exactly. <laughs> because you are creating the material that people are going to reference. So when we think we're spelling something correctly, she just made that shit up. Oh, no. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> and next up, from Surrey, British Columbia, oh, very close by, is Sarah Adrian. And what does Sarah do here in Surrey, the big metropolis of Surrey? She is a professional dog walker. Oh. I'm hoping because I wanted to bring Steve, but my dog, but we thought he'd be snorting and making noise. I was really looking forward to having So I'm Steve hoping maybe there. she could like dog walk when I come and do another show. That could be, yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? So Sarah, if you're up for walking Steve, let us know. It's more like he'll drag you down the street, but yeah, that's good. Because he is very uh, hefty. Hefty. He's a hefty boy. <laughs> um, next up, we have Smashly Joe. 
And Smashly Joe does not say where they are from. Uh, so where is Smashly Joe from on this wonderful planet of ours, Matthew? Smashly Joe is from East Lansing. East Lansing. And it's really funny because that's near, I think it's near Michigan City. So you have like two people from the same area. Right. And yeah. so what does Smashly Joe do? Uh, maybe smash things? I'm not entirely yeah, I think, sure. I think he makes mashed potatoes. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, those instant ones. You know? the, oh, the, yeah. They're, yeah. They're good. Just add water and Just add them up. water, yeah. I Man. actually kind of like those, to tell you the truth. They're sort of a, a guilty pleasure. Yeah, I've never had one. No, you're a fancy man. You're much fancier than I am. You gave us w those pears. What? How did you do those again? I can't oh, remember. saffron poached pears. Saffron poached pears when we were at Matthew's house for dinner one time. And we almost went into sugar shock because there's also like three cups of sugar with those things. Yeah. They just soak them up. They were amazing. Uh, well, thank you, Smashly Joe. Next up, from the United Kingdom, in fact, Beef. We have Laura Nickel. And what does Laura do there in the UK? Public relations. Oh. Yeah. Uh, is, so she relates to the public in yeah. some way? Yeah. Is, does she work for a specific company or? No, she freelances and she takes the hardest cases. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she's uh, represented me a few times. Represented you? Yeah. Wow. She, does she do Pierce Morgan as well? I'm here. I hear he has a little <laughs> trouble with public relations recently. I, I think he should maybe actually hire her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that might be a good thing. Thank you, Laura Nickel. Uh, next, we have Pam Ferguson. I don't know where Pam is from. <laughs> Pam is from Peggy's Cove. Oh, Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. Yeah, because it's uh, on your t-shirt. It's on my t-shirt. So, well, I mean, that's where she's from. So, and does she, is she work in the lighthouse there? Or? Absolutely. Oh, she just keeps it lit. So She keeps it lit. She keeps us safe over there. Yeah. Don't go on to the Black Rocks. That's always the big joke that the tourists go on to the Black Rocks and get washed away into the sea when what, the waves what, come. What are they? Sort of like the ones closest to the water. Yeah. Yeah, you don't do that. Yeah, it's kind of dumb. Well, thank you, Pam in Peggy's Cove. And next up, one more. We have Leslie. She's from somewhere here in Canada, but I'm not entirely sure where. Uh, what does Leslie, where is Leslie from, number one? The tub. What's the tub? Tobermory. Have you ever been there? No. Beautiful. What? Where is this place? So it's in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And there's a ferry there that opens up steve would love that it opens up it what's it called the i can't remember what it's called but she, there's glass bottom boats and she drives one of the glass bottom boats oh that's really cool yeah yeah i would like to uh have a glass bottom boat but not around here because the water's kind of crummy and <laughs> mucky sorry well sorry and falls creek isn't that great either <laughs> no. you can see the great uh Canadian whitefish float by yeah, every once in a while, a.k.a. condom. <laughs> oh, my God. We're terrible people. Well, let's. that's it for Patreon. So let's move on now to PayPal and see if anybody gave us any love on PayPal this week. <sighs> Since we've been gone. First up. Wow. 
Wow, we do. We had a few. Uh, you gave us something on uh, March 5th, which was kind of nice. Much appreciated from Matthew and Steve. Lovely. I knew it would get me onto the show. <laughs> but on March 9th, we received some donut money from Huyen Nguyen. And Huyen said, eat some donuts and then go shit in your hat. Nice. Yeah. Where is Huyen from? Are they from Canada? It sounds like a Vietnamese name. Huyen Nguyen. I might be wrong. It's spelled like a, my G Vietnamese friend's last Ho name. Ho Chi Minh City, near the Opera District. Oh, near the Opera? Have you been there? Yes. And uh, what uh, what kind of things does Huyen Nguyen do in the Opera District in Ho Chi Minh City? Huyen is a hotel magnate. Oh, a hotel. So this, owns the hotels. There's lovely hotels around there. Oh, wow. I yeah. would like to go to Vietnam. What was it, what was it like? It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Is the food any good? Of course. And cheap. And cheap. Yeah. I, you can't honestly, I almost exploded. I ate so much. <laughs> there you go. Next up we have Pam Ellsbury. Have a donut on me or maybe a beer. Smiley face. Love you guys. So the beer probably won't happen because neither of us drink. Pop. So, no. so we'll, we'll just do the donut thing. Uh, where's Pamela Ellsbury from? Mesa, Arizona. Mesa, Arizona. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What does she do for work around Mesa? Uh, you know, there's a mountain there that you can drive on. Mm -hmm. And it is like, there's a massive cliff and there's no railings. And she uh, is search and rescue. Oh, wow. That's yeah, cool. She rescues stupid tourists. <laughs> I have been a stupid tourist. So have I, in Mesa, Arizona. Oh, did you get, have to get rescued? <laughs> no, but it was scary. <laughs> there you go. Next up, we have Elizabeth Nickel. She says, I just binged your entire catalog and loved every minute of it. I could suggest a topic. If I could suggest a topic for an episode, the greatest true crime of the century, a crime that has left its mark on easily half of the world's population, a crime that forces its victims to carry burdens much heavier than they should, the invention of fake pockets in ladies' pants. Seriously, who decided we don't have stuff to store in our person? Anyway, go shit in your hat. Because you certainly can't shit in those pockets. And yes, I've spent the last week coming up with this. Keep up the good work, Lizzie. <laughs> Thank you, Lizzie. So Lizzie, I gather, is a designer, a clothing designer. I think she is. But what does she mean by fake pocket? Some ladies' pants have a fake pocket in the front. It just looks like a... Or in the back. What's the point? I don't know. Just for look? Okay. One aesthetics, <laughs> but I would say that Lizzie is trying to sell ladies' pants with pockets. I think so. yeah. Where is she from, though? Where is Lizzie from? Yeah, she is. Where's that little town? <laughs> Where is that little town just south of that place? Oh, a little bit south of Saskatoon. She's oh, she's from Strathroy, Ontario. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, Strathroy. It's funny because you know she's she's striking out right as a she's getting out there being a fashion designer. Strathroy used to be the turkey capital of North America. Oh, yeah. Wow. And she's like, I'm not going to do turkeys. I'm going to do fashion. <laughs> Good for her. Absolutely. Next, we have Alexandra Mikkel, and she says, "Can you wish my friend Renata a happy birthday?" She recommended this podcast to me. She's turning 29 on the 29th. Well, we were on a break. 
on March 29th. Happy belated birthday. Renata, happy belated birthday. Thank you guys are the best, Allie. So much appreciated. So she is a professional birthday wisher, I would gather. Just for friends and family. Just for friends and family. Uh, but where is Alexandra from? She is, is she Canadian as well? Or is she from down, down south? I don't know. I think she's from Harlem. Harlem? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't think you've had anyone write in from Harlem. Harlem's like really supposed to be on the up as well, by it's, the way. Yeah, it's supposed to be on the uh, upward swing. Have you been up there? Nope, I have never been. So you should see some of the beautiful old buildings out there. Oh yeah, Gorgeous. like old brownstone. Yeah, 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 so nice. I'd love to live in a brownstone. Yeah, well, brown, brown with an e stone. <laughs> oh, stop! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and our old friend Irene Brienne is back with another donation. Donuts for two Canadians, le- Canadian legends. I love the show. I've listened since the fourth episode. Love you to bits. Virtual hugs. With a rose, a heart, a hug, and a Canadian flag. Oh, that's great. Why isn't why isn't she listening to the first three episodes? I don't know. Oh. They, they were terrible. <laughs> were they? None of them. None of the early ones were that good. You know, I actually, if I go to podcasts, I actually intentionally don't listen to like the first like six months of the podcast. It's probably because a good idea. The, the quality level goes up. It's yeah, nice. it does go up yeah. after yeah. after a time. Yeah. Hopefully this show does the same thing. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to our patrons past and present and our Donut Money donors for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't subscribe already, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify, wherever else you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Come meet Matthew and Steve on the Yumber Yard and the Barnyard. <laughs> and most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Matthew. You're welcome.